do we exist? Were we created with a purpose or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to The Universe Next Door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. Join us as we seek to see a generation captivated and transformed by the truth of Christianity. This is The Universe Next Door. And this is Nick Sheldon. Welcome to The Universe Next Door. Uh, My family, we are planning on buying a cheap fire pit for the one day it's kind of cold out tonight in, in Florida. When I say cold, it's probably like 70 degrees, um, but it's colder than usual. So I'm excited about that. Of course, if it doesn't work out and we don't get a fire pit, then uh, then we won't be doing that. And our son won't be roasting any mini marshmallows, but the night is still young. So I'm going to hope. Uh, and speaking of cool weather, we're continuing our series on defeating defeatism. Uh, and we're, we're, what we're doing here is we're trying to actively overcome this idea that we've been defeated as Christians and as Americans and as as people who have ideas that we think are good and righteous. Um, not that we're perfect, not that we're all good and righteous in a practical sense, but um, that we we have ideas that we believe are true. And it's increasingly getting more popular to not want people to say things that they think are true if that's disagreed with um, by certain people who hold different views or certain views. So we're, we're fighting this idea that we've already been defeated and that we shouldn't even bother doing what we're doing. We shouldn't even bother trying to fight for truth because it's already done. It's already buried. Well, that's not true. <clears throat> I don't believe that for one second. And so we've had uh, Greg Kokel on to talk to us about how to have discussions with people. Um, we have had Billboard Chris on who literally walks around. He goes all, flies over the world and, and stands around in cities with like a sandwich billboard um, defending children's rights and talking about how children cannot consent to receiving puberty blockers and the damage these things do and that kind of stuff. Um, he was awesome. We had Moms for Liberties, uh, Tina Deskovich, the co-founder last week. She was awesome. They're growing like crazy. Um, they have well over 100,000 members now. And so as we continue this, um, I wanted to stop and do an episode on the foundation of a lot of these things that are going on. And if I could back up for a second, when you look at our culture, you probably see a lot of craziness going on. Now, whether you're in your 20s, your 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, whatever, we can all agree things look very different than when we grew up and that what we were used to, what you were used to. Things look very different. And it seems like it happened rapidly. Um, and it that's kind of true and it's kind of not true. This has been in the works for a very, very, very long time. Um, all of these cultural changes you see. And it's crucial to understand not only that the right thing to do is to fight um, a lot of these attempted changes uh, and to continue to talk about the truth and to fight for the truth actively and practically. It's, it's not only important to do that, but it's also important, first of all, to understand where these things are coming from and why they are happening. There's a reason you're seeing all this stuff. There's a reason you saw things explode after the George Floyd uh, incident and all of that. There's a reason that you see all of a sudden tons of kids wanting to change their gender and thinking that that it's the norm to do that. This stuff didn't come out of nowhere. It's been in the works for a very long time. Um, And as my my friend and somewhat of a mentor to me, Michael Fallon says, um, he actually has a, a podcast called The Causes of Things. But Um, I've heard him use this quote so many times from a a poet named Virgil who lived around 50 BC. He says, blessed is he who understands the causes of things. Okay, you cannot cure something that you don't understand. 
So we have to understand what the problem is and where it's coming from, at least to a degree, because you can't cure what you don't understand. And you who are listening, you're probably sitting there thinking, yeah, you know, I've noticed things are wrong for a long time. I've wanted to do something, but I have no idea what to do. If I try to say something, everybody at work and everybody in my family is just going to shout me down, <laughs> either either literally or online or metaphorically, whatever. Um, you probably just have no idea what to do. And that's what this series is intended to change. Because if we understand the problem, then we can start to do something about it. Okay, let's say you had COVID um, and you said, okay, I'm going to fix this by taking an antibiotic. Well, an antibiotic wouldn't kill COVID, right? So all you're doing is you're, you're attempting to, dec- to cure this disease that you don't understand. And so in taking an antibiotic, you're now killing good bacteria and other things that would help you to fight the, the, the disease. And that's what we don't want to do here. We don't want to misunderstand this and end up fighting something that doesn't exist or fighting something incorrectly and then making it even worse. We have to understand what we want to cure. Uh, and so that's what we're going to be talking about today, the foundation of these things. And I'm primarily going to be using um, James Lindsay's book called The Marxification of Education. Uh, if you have not heard of Dr. James Lindsay, prepare to have your life changed. Prepare to undersee, uh, understand what you're seeing a hundred times more clearly, because that's what's going to happen once you start reading and listening to James Lindsay. Um you should have heard of him because I've referenced him a number of times. He's also a very, very cool guy, despite what the people in Canada who have been trying to cancel him uh, might say. But very, very, very useful. Check out uh, what he has done if you haven't. I'm going to link the Marxification of Education book in the description below. Um, I'll try to remember to mention him in quotes, but just know I'm probably quoting from this book or one of his other books. Uh, very, very helpful. So um, just know that going in. And so before we dive into the foundation of some of these issues and how they came into our culture, make sure you hit follow so you're alerted of new episodes. Uh, and actually, right now, it's more important than others, other times because when I'm doing a series like this, I am guaranteed to lose followers. I'm going to gain followers more than usual, but I'm also going to lose more than usual. So please follow the show and keep up. Um, that is the best way you can help aside from also, you know, if you wanted to give to support the show, of course, it's not free to do this. Um, thank you so much to those of you who do give to support the show. Um, it's It goes a very, very long way and we are incredibly blessed. Um, but aside from that, following the show and sharing the show is the best thing you can do, especially in series like this where people are going to hit on follow when they hear something they disagree with. So with that being said, we're going to start by talking about the poison or the virus that has pretty much seeped into every area of our culture and that you see everywhere, and that is critical race theory, which is just one theory of, of critical theory. And we're going to get into maybe a little bit of critical gender theory. We've already talked about that for a couple of weeks, and then we're going to get into critical education theory. But critical theory is a virus. And when I say it's a virus, I'm not making an offhanded comment or just making something up. This is what is actually said by, by advocates of critical theory. Uh, Brianne Foz and Michael Carger, who are who are two professors um, of women's studies at Arizona State University, called critical theory a virus. Um, they say that it should be education should be turned into a vehicle for viral replication of the ideology, which can then go on to infect other domains of life by going with the reprogram students out into the world. So uh, we'll get into the details of the education stuff in a few minutes here. But there it is. They openly say that this is a virus. 
That's what it's intended to do. It's intended to infect people and then go out into the culture in order to infect more people. So number one, before we get into any detail, critical theory, including critical race theory, is a virus. Not my words. They probably would have been my my words otherwise. But once you see this um, as sort of a virus that is supposed to infect everything, then it's going to start to make more sense. Um, and this has been referred to as a long march through the institutions. And the idea is you're, you're taking this long march through all of the, through government, through schools, through work, through churches, which is why a lot of your churches have gone woke. And you're like, what the heck? What do I do? Uh, we, we just had a conference called Waking Up in a Woke Culture. Okay, so everybody's aware of this. But this long march through the institutions, it's supposed to go and, and take everybody with it as it goes and transform and spread this virus through all of these institutions as it goes. That's the point of the virus. That's why you look at a company like uh, like Bud Light. And, you know, w- when we're boy- boycotting Bud Light, of course, I'm not going to fight that. I mean, that's a good idea. But at the same time, what happened? You had a company that was historically conservative and American all of a sudden infiltrated by Marxists, and then destroyed from within. Same thing with Disney. All of a sudden, you say, wait a minute, all these classic Disney movies that I always loved, all of a sudden, like it seems like everything is is something I disagree with. It seems like they've gone from making movies about mythology and entertainment to now ideology. Everything's ideology. What What's happening here? Well, that's another example of this long march through the institutions. Well, what do you have? You have Marxists coming into a historically conservative organization, you know, founded by Walt Disney, and all of a sudden they're being destroyed from within. This is what critical theory does. It reaches its tentacles into everything and destroys it from the inside. And this is what's happening rapidly in our culture. And you might be thinking, Nick, you sound like a conspiracy theorist. You sound crazy. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. Well, I brought that up. Nobody's here except for me. So I'm glad I brought that up. Uh, Because number two, number one, critical theory is a virus. Number two, critical theory is a conspiracy theory. Now here I am going to Uh, remember to quote James Lindsay, because not only is this a wonderful quote, but it it also helps you really get a grasp of what's going on. So critical race theory is a conspiracy. It believes that the fundamental organizing principle of society is systemic racism that was created and is maintained by white people in order to maintain their advantage. So let me read that one more time. Why is critical theory, why is critical race theory a conspiracy? It believes that the fundamental organizing principle of society is systemic racism that was created and is maintained by white people in order to maintain their advantage. That is a conspiracy theory. And he goes on to say it's a weird conspiracy theory because it believes that most people who believe in it and participate in the conspiracy don't know they are doing it. So it is a conspiracy It's a conspiracy that the nation, that the United States is founded in order to help white people advance. And that's upheld by white people who don't realize they're upholding it. And therefore, they're all systemically racist. They're racist whether they realize it or not. Um, And in this case, it just happens to be white people because most of America is white. and That's one of many reasons. Um, But what you have in Marxism, in neo-Marxism, 
and remember when you see neo before something it just means new so um like the, the neo-atheist movement for example is a new atheist movement uh, but what you have in neo-marxism is you have this idea that everyone is either the oppressed or the oppressor and with marx um, you had what was called the proletariat, and the proletariat was the working class people, and, and they're always regarded collectively. When you're talking about Marxism, it divides people into groups and regards them collectively. Um, that probably looks familiar to you too, right? Everybody's divided into groups. Even in my, my church, our students, our teenage students um, at youth group, everything they say is about race all the time. Because we've been programmed to think this way. I'll get, again, we'll get into the education um, sort of portion of that in a few minutes here. But this is how we're conditioned to think now. Everybody's divided into a group. It's either the LGBT or it's the white, black, Asian, Hispanic, um, fill in the blank. It's the, it's the uh, more wealthy or less wealthy, the poor or the rich. Everybody's divided into groups. So from, in Marx's time, these groups of the oppressed and the oppressor were the proletariat, the working class people, or the bourgeois who were the oppressors. And the, the oppressors, the bourgeois, they are the owners of the means of production who sell the commodities produced by the proletariat. So they are the ones who are oppressing those guys who are working and producing everything. They're just kind of taking what they do and they're the ones who are living the life off of it while the proletariat has to suffer. So you have the oppressor and you have the oppressed. And in order for the system to work, the oppressed and the oppressor have to be identified. And that's what's going on here today. Um, you've, you've probably heard this by now, but um, there's a difference between equality and equity. Equality is giving everybody an equal opportunity. Um, that's what America is supposed to be. And that, of course, is something that always needs to be improved. It's something that always needs to be um, progressing. And, and there's going to be modifications and tweaks that have to be made, of course. Uh, but that's what equality is. It's giving everybody an equal chance to succeed, everybody an equal chance to work, and so on and so forth. What equity does is equity forces equality of outcome. So let's say you had uh, a white man running a company as a CEO. Well, what equity would say is that that white man who's running the company as a CEO, he has to be replaced by, let's say, a black lesbian woman. Now, of course, when you ask somebody to define a woman, they can't do that. Uh, but but that's the idea, that that guy would have to be replaced by that woman. And that's what equity is. It's not taking the best person um, for the job. It's not taking the best person for the opportunity. It's it's not, it's it's the opposite of, of capitalism. Um, and so what it does is it takes somebody and it puts them in a position. It forces equality of outcome. And so equity is communism. That's the goal here. Equity is communism. And communism is the utopian end goal of socialism. So it's the idea that the government is supposed to be enforcing equality of outcome. That's the government's role. Where somebody like me, well, I believe that the government's role is to protect citizens. I believe it's um, to, to manage things, of course. I, I would believe it's to restrain evil. I believe it's, you know... It's things in that sort of category. But what this these views say is that the government's job is to force equality of outcome, which is what you see happening all over the place all the time now. You see it everywhere. Well, there's a reason that you see it, and this is why. Critical race theory is not a theory that says racism exists in the world and we need to fight it. If that's what critical race theory was, then I'd say, sign me up. Let's go do it. Okay, it, and in fact, if somebody points to an institution where racism is going on, 
then we need to fight that, which is exactly what I'm doing right now, by the way, when you have all of these organizations that are saying everybody's racist without realizing it, therefore you're the oppressor, and therefore you should have things taken away from you. That is racism, and that's why I want to fight it. So regardless of who it is, regardless of the color or the ethnicity, regardless of gender, if there's racism or sexism and it's genuine, then it needs to be fought. It needs to be brought down. If somebody's being denied something or denied some sort of right that, uh, in again, in my opinion, are inalienable, let's say right to property, right to pursuit of happiness, um, right to life and liberty. If somebody's being denied these things, <clears throat> then we need to fight that. I mean, that's biblical, but that's not what critical theory is. And that's what we have to understand. It, it isn't that. It isn't saying racism exists and we should fight it. It is a view that is a conspiracy theory. And that says the fundamental organizing principle of society is systemic racism that was created and is maintained, a key word, is maintained by white people in order to maintain their advantage. That's what critical theory is. And it's a view who uses whoever it needs to use. That's why you don't hear about BLM anymore. It was such a big deal. It was all over the NFL. Well, now they're supporting terrorists. They've crumbled. They, they spent millions of dollars on mansions and all that while pretending they were using money to help people. Okay, this is stuff that, that people are kind of seeing come to light, but I'm pretty confident that next time it needs to, it'll pop back up again and everybody will forget as soon as they're told something that will that will cause them to think otherwise. And we have to be prepared for this. And we have to be prepared not only to recognize it, but to fight it. And I know when you bring it up, maybe you you're, you want to talk about your views on this, but you're afraid you're going to be called racist. You're afraid you're going to be called a bigot. You're afraid you're going to be called, you know, fill in the blank. We have to be willing to be called names until we can help people understand what is going on. Because if we don't understand it, we can't cure it. And if they don't understand it, they can't cure it either. We have to understand it. So remember, there are multiple critical theories, but what critical race theory does is it seeks to raise consciousness of your participation in the conspiracy to keep racial minorities down. So race, in, in terms of critical theory, race is the, um, the main thrust here. But that's what it does. It seeks to raise consciousness of your participation in what you don't realize you're participating in. Now, we need to do the opposite. What we need to do is raise consciousness for the people who are participating in critical race theory and don't realize what they're doing and don't realize that this thing is something that feeds on your compassion. It feeds on your gullibility. It feeds on you not looking at the literature, not reading their writings, not actually uh, looking at what they're putting out and why they're putting it out. It, it feeds off of guilt. It feeds off of emotion. It feeds off of compassion that is misplaced. And that's why it succeeds. And that's why it has succeeded. And don't think just because big companies like Disney and NFL and Apple and fill in the blank, just because you know these big companies are doing this, there's no way I can fight those. But that's not true. You might have to be wiser and more knowledgeable and more prepared than you are right now. But that can be done by reading and by watching videos. I mean, we have things at our fingertips, at our disposal uh, that, that people never had. I mean, you can, you, I was just thinking the other day when I was in my backyard, um, and I, I was thinking about bamboo and I remember when I was a kid, like my grandpa knew how to, how to get rid of bamboo. He had like this whole system that he had learned from somebody where it was like, you cut down the bamboo and then you pour gas on it and then you cut it down again. And there was like this, I forget what it was, but there was this whole method to it. And I was thinking like, if I had bamboo in my yard, let's say 25 years ago, I would have to like 
I'd have to think, okay, I'm going to call my grandfather and ask how to get rid of it. And that's, and that's how you, you gained knowledge. You'd have to go find someone who knew. You'd have to go read a book. Now, if I had bamboo in my yard, it would be like, I'd type it in YouTube. And within a half a second, I'd have hundreds of videos on how to get rid of bamboo forever that are like, how to get rid of bamboo in three minutes. Like things are different now. We have so much at our disposal. We have so much right at our fingertips that we have no excuse but to use it. There's no excuse not to be not to be reading up on things and listening to things. And, and I want to get better at it too. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that I'm the be all end all, but there is no excuse. It's just, it's intellectual laziness and we are to love the Lord with all of our mind. And in fact, if it were up to me, the only thing I would do on this show is I would talk about theology every week. I want to talk about the divine counsel right now. Okay. That's what I want to talk about. But this stuff is important. And we have to realize that our children are not going to have the lives that we grew up with or that you grew up with. They're not going to have that life. They're going to be living a life where everything is watched, where you can only say certain things. This is already trying to creep into our culture and largely has. And it's only going to get worse if we don't fight it. So they're not going to have the freedom we had to go talk about whatever they want. We're not even going to have that in the future if we don't fight this. So you know, we, we we can't just ignore the glaring issues of our culture. We can't just say, well, we've already been defeated, so what's the big deal? These big companies are already... No, we can't do that. We have to fight it, and we have to do what's right, regardless of what we've imagined in our heads the outcome to be. So with that being said, woke is Marxism. Remember, the idea of woke, it's that, you know, my, my critical conscience, consciousness has been woken up. I'm woke now. That's the idea of woke. That's what you're being awakened to. Critical theory is critical Marxism. You're either the oppressed or the oppressor. So with this little bit of foundation laid here, um, now we can look at how this stuff has made its way into the education system. Now we've spent the last two episodes or so um, talking about how this looks in the education system, but we're going to talk about how it got into the education system. Again, this stuff didn't all just pop up out of nowhere. And I think, um, I think having this knowledge is really going to help you see it differently uh, because it's actually been happening in the education system for a good two, almost three decades now. Uh, so there was a man named Paulo Freire, uh, I think in, in Portuguese is my first language. So in Portuguese, it's Paulo Freire. Uh, but I'm not going to talk Portuguese for the rest of the episode. That's all I'm going to say. Um, I'm going to I'm going to call him Paulo Freire because that's how most people will recognize the name. But Paulo Freire, um, he is pretty much the man responsible for critical theory coming into the school systems, or let's say for neo Marxism coming into the school system. And that's by the way what this book, The Marxification of Education, is primarily about. If you haven't ordered it yet, order it on Amazon. You can click it and, and order it in 20 seconds. Um, but Incredible book. It'll go in a lot more detail than I'm going to go into. But um, Paulo Freire is the one who brought this into the school system. Um, he was raised in Brazil. And so he was he lived in Brazil during the time of the industrialization of Brazil. Uh, and so what he sees is, well, my family, they're farmers. Uh, we, you know, we live off of what we do. We don't need to be educated properly. We we just need to know what we need to know in order to do our jobs and make a living. And all of a sudden, these uh, what he sees as these colonizers come in and they're messing everything up and they're now ruling um, how things are done in Brazil. And so he sees this happening and he says, well, we're being oppressed. They're the oppressors. 
and this is where the title post-colonialist comes from, which you've probably heard as well. Um, he, he was a post-colonialist and he was a Marxist. As a result of what was happening around him, his family was um, thrust into poverty. There was turmoil, turmoil all over the place. And so he finds solidarity. He finds community um, with these other poor people in the third world. And so he becomes a Marxist. This is now the lens that he sees the world through. He sees oppressed and he sees oppressor. And not only that, but he sees proper education as something brought in by these oppressors, brought in by these uh, colonizers. And that's going to make a lot of sense here in a few minutes. And that's going to be important because he sees education itself as racist, as colonialist, as prejudice, because it displaces those who aren't formally educated. In a lot of cases, farmers wouldn't have had to know how to read. They wouldn't have had to have been literate. Um, It really wouldn't have affected anything. So he sees this as their version of uh, education, their version of how things should go, and now they're enforcing it on a whole nation and everything is is changing. And formal education is considered um, to be oppressive. So you can see how this fits in with the Marxist view of society and where his thinking is going. You now have the bourgeois who come in with this whole new system and you have the proletariat and, and he looks at it as, you know, they're, they're deciding Um, based on education, who is valuable and who isn't, who should be part of the system and who shouldn't be. And you end up with um, Freire identifying with Marxism now, with the oppressed and the oppressor. And he wants to fight this. He wants to to be um, vocal about this and he wants to do something about it. Now, there's a word for what Freire wanted to do. um, And this is a word that you've probably also heard in our culture today. And that is decolonization. So he wanted to reverse this. He wanted to decolonize um, the nation. He wanted to revolt against the oppression that he had witnessed. So now that we have a little bit of idea um, of Paulo Ferreri's background and upbringing, we can fast forward a little bit. Um, Now you have the uh, Marxist riots and everything of the 60s and 70s. And over time, they figure out that this isn't working. We need to do something else. And so what do they do going into the 80s? that radical Marxism moves into the classroom from the streets. So it's no longer a movement in the streets because that's not working. So now what it's going to do is it's going to move into the classroom. And remember, there's already a link between Ferrari and education because of what he saw uh, in the industrialization of Brazil. So they now move this into the classrooms and this is where Marxism is going to be more successful than ever and still is. So on page one of the Marxification of Education, Um, James Lindsay writes, Paulo Ferreri is recognized as the third most cited scholarly author in all of the humanities and social sciences by authoritative metrics. It exaggerates none at all to state that Paulo Ferreri is at the the theoretical center of everything happening in colleges of education today and from there our nation's schools. A succinct way to phrase the consequences of his influence on education is that our kids go to Paulo Ferreri's schools. There is the problem that we're going to now develop. Our kids go to Paulo Ferreri's schools. He says this is nothing short of the theft of education. So what does it mean that your kids go to Paulo Ferreri's schools? Well, here's what it doesn't mean. And here's what far too many of us think, although I think people are starting to think it less. 
it doesn't mean that there's just some fringe teachers out there, like some crazy, super far left teachers um, who are bringing their own ideas into the classroom and enforcing them on the kids and then saying, oh, no, no, I didn't do that. That's happening. Okay. That certainly is happening. But that's not the big issue. The big issue is that education itself has been replaced. And you'll have to learn a new word. If you don't know this word, maybe you do. But the word is pedagogy. And pedagogy is the theory and practice of education. It is the big picture structure of education. So it is not that uh, what's happening is Freire wanted to come and he wanted to just sort of inject things here and there. He just wanted to switch a few things up. He came with the intention of entirely changing the system of education. That's why it's called the theft of education here, because education is actually replaced with activism, with neo-Marxist activism. So you have to understand that. It isn't that he just came to switch things up. It isn't just a teacher here or there who is just sort of like, just like kind of out of their mind and doing crazy stuff in a classroom. Again, that happens, but that isn't the issue. The issue is that education has effectively, for the most part, been replaced by neo-Marxism. And this was adopted in American education by 1995. So it started in the 80s, and it was adopted by the American education system by 1995. Uh, and this is what Lindsay says on page three. He says, Freire's method simply gets education wrong, misprioritizes the classroom and educational purpose, and disengages students from academic learning objectives in favor of political activism. So pause there. It disengages students from academic learning objectives, and it replaces them with political activism. On the other hand, I'm going back to reading now, page three. On the other hand, part of this result probably is intended, since Freire uh, indicts all other models of education as leading to the reproduction of the society he wants to see overthrown in cultural revolution. That is, Freire doesn't want education that teaches people how to be successful in a society that he wants to see cast down, end quote. So remember, all the way back to Freire's upbringing in Brazil and the industrialization, he sees education as the key to the culture he wants to dismantle, to the culture that is oppressive, to the culture that he is opposed to and wants to revolt against. And so that's what he's doing. And that's what critical theory seeks to do. That's what Marxism seeks to do. If you're going to implement a, uh, a socialist and, a, and then a communist society, you have to first rip apart the society that's already there. You know, it's like if you bought land uh, and you wanted to build a whole brand new dream house on it, the first thing you have to do is demolish the house that was already there. And that's the intention here. That's why your kids are coming home and saying things that you're saying, where the heck did that come from? What do you mean we're racist? What do you mean we're bad because we're rich? What do you mean we're, you know, whatever it may be, whatever it is they're saying, what do you mean that you're, you know, you're a boy and so you should be more sensitive to, to your surroundings and that, uh, you know, you should consider changing your gender, whatever it may be. This stuff didn't come from nowhere. It is coming from a number of places, but primarily the education system for our kids. They're being taught this in school. So education now becomes math, science, reading, English. Those topics, those subjects now become an opportunity for political activism. They now become an opportunity to talk about racism, to talk about sexism, to talk about class. This is now what education has been formed into over the last 30 years or so. This has been happening more and more rapidly. 
And so before we look at some of the statistics of what's happening in education, what's happening in regard to students uh, learning and passing and not passing things, don't send your kids to Paulo Freire schools and expect them not to come back as neo-Marxists. If you're sending your kids to public school, you better be on top of things, especially depending on the region you live in. If they're going to public school, you need to know what's going on. You need to know what's in their backpacks. You need to know their teachers. You need to know what their school is doing. They are your kids. They're not the government's kids. They're not the teacher's kids. They're not Paulo Ferreri's kids. They're certainly not the culture's kids. You know, if you've heard that phrase that it takes a village to raise a child, please burn that out of your mind forever. Just burn that village right now because that's not true. It takes a good parent. It takes two good parents to raise a child. If you think for one second these people care about your kids, you're out of your mind. They don't care about your kids. They're not compassionate. They want to use your kids to establish a purpose. They want to use your kids as political pawns to achieve something, and that's exactly what they're doing. And that's why your kids come home saying crazy things. That's why my youth group students come to church thinking crazy things, because this is what they're being taught. This is what they're being indoctrinated with in schools. Education has been replaced. The pedagogy of education has been replaced with neo-Marxism, with political activism. And remember, I'm not talking about conspiracy theories here. I'm listing you facts and figures and things that are going on that are undeniable. Critical race theory is, on the other hand, a conspiracy theory. It's, it's built off something that can't be proven, and they know it can't be proven. It's like Gnosticism. It's like, hey, I know this thing. I know you're a racist or sexist or whatever it may be, even though you won't admit it or even though you might not know it. That's not what objective truth looks like. That's not what actual discourse and actual discussion looks like. That's what a cult looks like. And for those of you who, who previously might have been part of a cult or something cult-like, like you know that guilt is always associated with it. There's always either this direct guilt or at least subtle guilt. It's always associated with it because that's a good motivator to get people to do something, to think they have to do something. I mean, for example, notice throughout this whole series, I haven't said, you guys have to fight this or you're bad. If we don't do something, we're bad. I haven't said that. I've said if we don't fight this then we're going to lose our freedom and then we're going to see one thing at a time go away. That's the reality. Okay. Guilt is not a proper motivator. Guilt is when is what you use when you don't actually have a good reason for something. And when you do this for long enough, you force guilt for long enough, you force this idea of equity. Remember, not equality, but equity for long enough. Uh, when you administer this stuff for long enough, people just start to, they, they forget you're even doing it and they just start to go along with it. And eventually people begin to become so indoctrinated with it, so used to it, that it becomes the new norm. And that's what's being pushed here. That's why you see uh, kids being taught that, you know, trans stuff and, and homosexual stuff is the new norm. And by the way, when you're fighting this, the last thing you want to do is give in to division. Okay, when you're fighting this, you don't want to begin to even categorize yourself as it's us versus them. Uh, in a way, that's true. But you don't even you don't want to start to make the division even worse which is also easy to do and which has been uh, being done for a long time now. And, you know, Jesus had something to say about kingdoms that were divided and not standing. Well, that's still true. And look at the results of this. Uh, fourth grade reading in 2022. So th this is the statistics for, for kids who were not proficient at fourth grade reading last year. White, 58%. Hispanic, 79%. Black, 83%. 58%. 79% and 83% <laughs> not proficient. That's from the NAEP. 
Now, blaming this on COVID would be a decent argument if it was like 25 or 30% not proficient. And even that is, would be pretty bad, okay? But th- you'd have an argument with that. But to have 21 out of 100 students only being proficient, uh, according to Fox News 26, there were 19 Minnesota schools where zero students were proficient in math. Zero, not one. <laughs> Like, what part of that is even a school anymore? The The intention is no longer education. The intention is political activism. Remember, our kids go to Paulo Freire's schools. This is what this movement has intended to do, and this largely is what this movement has done. So this is why we need to fight this movement. This is why we need to be able to understand, be able to identify, and then be able to point things out so that when you're researching these things, now you can at least have a lens to sort of view them through that these aren't arbitrary statistics. The the stuff you see happening with your kids in schools, um, and if you don't have kids, the stuff you see happening just all over our culture, it didn't pop out of nowhere, and it is not going away on its own. That is for certain. So we have a decision to make. We can either understand and fight it and defend our children and raise our own children and fight for the sort of culture that we want to have and that we think we should have that's based on uh, individuals having value, individuals having liberty and freedom and not being collectivized, not being grouped into these groups where your identity is now useless and non-existent. We can fight for that or we can continue to watch this Uh, These trends grow. We can continue to watch the indoctrination take over our kids and our culture, and we can continue to watch everything be infected by this virus, by this poison, self-admittedly, this virus that is seeping into everything in our culture, this long march through our institutions that is going to take everything with it, including our children. That long march through the institutions would only be taking a walk if we would stop going with them. Thank you for listening to The Universe Next Door. Don't forget to hit follow if you haven't done that. If you have any questions, send them to information at apologetics.org. That's information at apologetics.org. We have a whole lot of awesome, exciting stuff coming up, so make sure you hit follow so that you're alerted of new episodes so that you can keep up with what's going on. Um, and thank you so much for being a listener of the show. I hope you have a blessed week, and we'll see you back here Monday night at 6 p.m. on The Universe Next Door. Bye.